watching uh, the Olympics yesterday, and during the, uh, one of the commercial breaks, they did a, they were doing, I think it was for the Canadian Leprosy Mission, uh, and the kids were asking all sorts of questions about leprosy and what it is, and, and they were saying that for like $300, I think it is, that a person with leprosy can be given a medicine that will cure them from the leprosy, uh, I think in the time of a year of taking this medicine. And, and so I was thinking this morning that we could list a whole bunch of cures to diseases that are quite incredible uh, if we understand them. Uh, I know that, you know, I have gout, and I take a medicine that if I have a flare-up of gout, it, it, it's almost instantaneous, uh, the relief that I get from it. And I'm sure some of you can, could share your uh, prescriptions, uh, not share, but tell us about, uh, <laughs> I think we get in trouble for sharing them these days. But, you know, you don't really understand how amazing a cure is unless you understand the sickness, right? And it's the same thing with good news. It's hard to appreciate and fully understand good news unless you fully understand and appreciate the bad news that kind of is related to it or is possible if it wasn't for that good news. And what we're finding in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, is this. And this is what we're going to start looking at today. To fully understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel, we need to fully understand and appreciate the bad news about our problem of sin and God's required response to it. I don't know about you, uh, when Arnie started reading from Romans 1 and read verse 18 to us, it's kind of like a slap in the face. I know it slapped me in the face all week as I was preparing for today, because last week I was excited about the message. Richard was was, uh, facilitating the table, and and in my conversations with Richard during the week, and even on Sunday morning, I was excited. I was excited about who's going to hear this great message of the gospel, and talking about the power of God uh, to save people, and, and that this righteousness of God, God saving activity, saving those, giving a right standing to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. I was excited about that message. Then you get to verse 18. As I said, it's like a slap in the face. Instead of expounding on the gospel, this good news, all of a sudden Paul starts talking about God's wrath against sin. And he doesn't just mention it for a verse or two. You're going to find for the next few weeks, all the way to about the middle of chapter 3, Paul talks about sin. And you might ask, why does he do that? If you got the update this week, I kind of alluded to a quite, again, quite a popular sermon illustration, but it's true. Uh, something that every jeweler knows. Uh, if you want to see the beauty of a diamond, you don't show the customer the diamond sitting on a glass table. Rather, you put a black velvet backdrop. So as the light shines through the diamond, it shows its brilliance, and its, its beauty, its, its clarity. And, and Paul understands that if we are going to understand God's love, we need to see it against the backdrop of his wrath. If we're going to understand God's saving power uh, in its fullest, we need to see it against the backdrop of the destructive potential uh, of sin. If we want to understand the forgiveness of God, we need to understand it against the backdrop of the penalty for sin. And so in the letter to Romans... The gospel is that gem. And for us to understand its brilliance and to see its 
in its most clearest sense, we need to see it against the backdrop of God's wrath against our sin. And remember that I also said last week in verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul is writing very strategically. He's writing phrases that correspond or answer the question that we might ask about the phrase that preceded it. And so we ended off last week. Paul said, the righteousness or a righteousness from God is being revealed. Well, why is it being revealed? Well, verse 18 tells us that at the same time, the wrath of God is being revealed. So that's what Paul is doing. And so for the next few weeks, Paul's going to be holding up a mirror. And we're going to be talking about sin. Not necessarily a topic that we want to talk about, but Paul wants to hold that mirror in front of us so that we can understand our need for a Savior. We don't like talking about sin. We like talking about other people's sin. We don't like talking about our own sin. In fact, if we're talking about our own sin, our tendency is probably to rationalize our sin. But Paul wants us to understand our problem of sin. He wants us to understand everybody's problem of sin so that we understand in its fullest that the greatest need of every human being is they need a savior. They need to have the problem of sin that each one of us is afflicted with has to have that problem dealt with. And so we come to verse 18, and if you've got a Bible, open it. And I encourage you to bring your own Bible so that you're bringing it home. You're writing notes in it. If you don't have one, take the Pew Bible and call that your own. And if you want to write notes in it, go ahead and underline things. And let's get to Romans chapter 1, and uh, we're going to start looking at verse 18. So Arnie's already read verse 18 to us. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God. Not a real popular sermon, sermon topic these days. Uh, and I can tell you it's not a sermon topic that I sit and think, okay, what can we talk about next week? Uh, the wrath of God. Now there's one that I'm real eager to speak on. I realize that speaking on the wrath of God, uh, there is a temptation for people to label me or to label this church uh, as narrow-minded, as mean judgmental, to think that someone who is a seemingly nice person could be sent to hell is not a thing that we like to think about. And so the temptation, we talked about this last week, we like to sugarcoat the gospel or candy coat the gospel. We avoid talking about some of the negative aspects about salvation. We apologize that we have to speak about it. And I understand the reservations because I've been thinking about them all week long as I've been contemplating this passage. As I divvied out the passages for this uh, series and then I realized, oh, I gave myself this part of chapter one. Uh, I could have given it to Ben. (laughs) I gave him next week, so, and he's going to have fun with that one. So I understand the reservations, but two facts hit me in the face. The Bible talks more about wrath than it does about love. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. 
And so if we are students of God's Word, if we are communicators of God's Word, we have to wrestle with this fact. The Bible treats sin and its punishment and its need for a Savior very seriously. And if we're going to be true to the text, we need to consider uh, these things. So the wrath of God. Wrath. What can we say about wrath? It's, it's a word that I think we all have our own understanding of. Uh, sometimes we kiddingly say, you do that, child of mine, friend of mine, employee of mine, you will experience my wrath. And we may say that jokingly, or some of you may have experienced life living under someone's wrath. And it's not so much a joking issue. And so f- from a human standpoint, wrath might mean flying off the handle, uh, unrestrained rage, getting even with a person. But that's not what it means when we talk about God. When we talk about the wrath of God, what we're talking about is God's holy hatred of sin. We're talking about his justified natural response to sin. My youngest daughter, Natalie, is allergic to peanuts. If she consumes peanuts in any fashion, she will have a violent reaction. She can't tolerate peanuts. Well, to a much greater degree, God has a violent reaction to sin. He can't tolerate it. He can't allow it into his presence. He can't condone it. He can't just ignore it. He can't sweep it under a carpet. He must deal with it. In God's mind, sin is like a terminal disease. Sin is like a cancer that must be dealt with. It must be removed. Dr. Ray Pritchard, his definition of God's wrath is, is, is quite simple, and it's, it's an easy one to remember. God's wrath is what happens when holiness meets sin. When holiness meets sin. And in the uh, balance of this chapter... With the backdrop of God's wrath, Paul is going to give us three realities that we need to consider describing the desperate situation we as humans fall in as people under God's God's wrath. In verses 18 through 20, we've already read it, we see the first reality, and the first reality is this. God has made something of himself known to every person, so no one has an excuse. If you were to come to my house and to go into my basement, into my office, even if you didn't know me, you would discover a few things about me. Probably, first of all, that I'm very messy. Secondly, you would discover I love to read. There are books everywhere, and that's part of the messiness. You'd understand pretty quickly that I must like things about religion because I have all sorts of commentaries. And most of my books have to do with Christian living or apologetics or different doctrines. You'd probably tell very quickly that I run a business out of my basement because there's all sorts of stuff relating to a business that has my name all over it. You would see that I love music. There are records, yes, records, hundreds of them, and CDs and old tapes. I don't think there's any 8-tracks left. And lots of stereo equipment, most of it not used, to my wife's dismay. 
you would learn a lot about me. You'd understand I have children. I collect things that my kids paint and draw and staple and put in envelopes and keep them in filing uh, folders so that someday I can pull them out and look at them. You would understand, without even knowing me, you would understand and get to know a lot about me just by being in my office. And what Paul is saying in verses 18 through 20 is this. Just by looking at the world around us, we can know something about him. The fact that it's so beautiful and majestic tells us that there must be a creator. There must be a designer to this world. The fact that it's so beautiful and majestic would say that whoever's behind it must be a good God. He's not evil. And when we look at the power around us, the power of nature, we can tell that that whoever the, the designer and the creator is of this universe, they must be even more powerful than the forces of nature that we see. And so that would lead us instinctively to realize that there must be a greater power. And if he is great, he is worthy of our awe, of our worship, that that it would make sense if he's that powerful, we should serve him and obey him because he's powerful. And that's why if you go to any corner of this world, there is this idea, understanding concept, possibility, that there is a supreme being. And Paul says in, in verse 20, and, and look at verse 20, because there's two things he says. He wants us to understand that this is, this is not just a, a possibility. Verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And what that means is that Just by looking around us, we can understand something about God by viewing his handiwork. And then Paul says, not only is it clearly seen, it's been understood. We understand. Something about God strikes our heart. And so what Paul is saying is that by just seeing the world around us, we can know something of God. And because of that, we have no excuse. Nobody can come to the end of their life and say, I had no idea that there was anything like a God. Okay? So reality number one, we don't have an excuse. God has revealed something of himself to everyone. Theologians call that natural or general revelation. Reality number one. The second reality in verses 21 through 23, and and I'm going to start looking at the end of uh, verse 18, but the second reality is this. We are all under God's wrath because we have foolishly and willfully rejected God. We've rejected the truth and we've turned away from God. Look at verse 18 at the second part of it. So it says, The wrath of God is being revealed. It says against, well, why don't I just read it? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Maybe not something that we would say, but something that most of us do. Maybe you don't even know you suppress the truth. To suppress the truth means to reject something or someone despite 
evidence, overwhelming evidence, to the contrary. So, there is evidence that would say that we should wear a helmet when we ride a recreational vehicle. Overwhelming evidence that would say that we should. And yet, many of us may get on a four-wheeler and ride it on our property without a helmet. Smoking, overeating, there's all sorts of things that... There's overwhelming evidence, and yet we suppress the truth. We reject it and do it uh, anyways. And what Paul is doing here in these verses, with a very wide brush, he is brushing an overall indictment of all humanity. He's saying, we've no God, but we reject the truth concerning him. We know something about God, but we turn away from him. Flip down to verse 25. This is a real important concept as we consider the rest of these verses. Verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What is the lie? In fact, in the original language, it says they've exchanged the truth for the lie. What's the lie? Well, many think that what Paul's talking about is the lie that took place in the Garden of Eden. The greatest deception of Satan. When he told Adam and Eve, you can be a God. You can be your own God. You can be like God. Things are being held from you. You just need to overstep the boundaries that God in his meanness has told you that you can't. And you can call your own shots. You can run your own life. That is the great lie of Satan. That we can be our own God. That the created can be greater than the creator. Okay, so just just keep that in mind as we consider uh, these uh, verses. And since that time, everything's gone downhill. Literally. And this... Decision to reject the truth and to turn away from God is not just a cognitive decision. We don't just go, okay, God, you've made something known about yourself, but I'm going to refuse to believe that you exist. I'm going to refuse anything to, to have anything to do with the truth concerning you. And that's it. And what Paul says, it's, it's an active decision. In fact, there is a progression away from God. When we make that decision to reject the truth concerning him. It's a downward spiral of rejection. And in verses 21 to 23, Paul describes that progression away from God. And in verse 21, we see that first step. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So the first mistake we make when we reject the truth concerning God is that we fail to acknowledge God. We don't glorify. We don't worship Him. We don't thank Him. We don't have gratitude towards Him. And so what's left? God's out of the picture. We congratulate ourselves. We pat ourselves on our back for our accomplishments. We celebrate fate. We celebrate good luck. God's out of the picture. And then the next step is mental failure. We don't acknowledge God. It says then their thinking became futile. With God out of the picture, humanity tries to draw conclusions about life apart from the truth 
about God. Have you ever listened to a radio talk show and they have a topic on and you want so badly to call and give a biblical or a Christian perspective that to me sheds so much light on the topic they're talking about and yet someone beats you to it and before they even get anything out of their mouth, they're, they're shut down? Well, we don't really feel that what the Bible has to say about this or what God has to say about this or what Christianity has to say about this topic is really relevant at all. It's because the thinking has become futile. We're trying to figure out life apart from the truth of, uh, concerning God. And, and Paul says that's a mental failure. And mental failure leads to moral failure. It says their foolish hearts become darkened. When the head goes fuzzy, the heart follows it. When there's a mental failure, there's a moral failure. It becomes very difficult to consistently make proper moral decisions. And then it continues. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I didn't know how to describe this step, so I just called it moronic content. Because we've rejected God. We've turned from Him. We've tried to figure out life apart from God. We've had a mental failure. We've had a moral failure. And then we kind of look back at God and go, hey, aren't we really the thing, right? We're wise, and Paul's saying, no, you're foolish. And what foolish actually means is God saying, you're not wise, you're a moron. Because that's what foolish means. You're a moron. You think you can live life apart from me? I designed life. And then we get to the, that last step. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles idolatry. We refuse to acknowledge that there's a God, but there's a God-shaped hole in every human being. And so we create our own gods. We make our own gods and we submit to them. We, we allow them to control us. We worship them apart from the God of the universe. And an idol is anything that takes the place of God's rightful place that he should have in our life. And so you got this, this downward spiral, spiral of rejection. And then we come to the third reality. Well, what's God's response? How does God respond when we foolishly and willfully reject the truth concerning him and walk away from him? Well, Paul says that God's wrath is revealed by giving us what we want. Burger King was not the first people to say, have it your way. God was. Have it your way. Look at verse 24 right through to 32. Three times it says, therefore God gave them up. Some have said, God abandons them. To what? To what they want to do. To live life by their own rules. To chase their, their selfish uh, ambitions. To, to, to uh, reap what they sow. You see, the punishment for sin is more sin. The judgment against sin is more sin. And why would God do that? Well, first of all, God's a gentleman. He's not going to force anything on us. It's our choice to accept him or to, or to reject him. But I think there's a redemptive purpose here as well. God wants us to see and to understand how empty life is without him. God wants us to see what a bottomless pit of despair it is 
trying to figure out and live life apart from him. And so he gives us up. And Paul, in these final verses, again, describes this negative progression of rebellion. This downward spiral as we live life apart from God and he allows us to pursue whatever it is that we want to pursue. And so in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. The first step is we, we extend the boundaries of what God intended for good. And the example that Paul uses here is, is in the area of sex, sex, sexual immorality, in the area of sex. God designed sex to be a wonderful thing, but within the boundaries of marriage. And so that first step of rebellion is we take what God meant for good, and we take it way beyond the limits that God ever intended it. And so sex within marriage now becomes sex outside of marriage. It becomes premarital sex. And I think the greater meaning here is that first step of rebellion is we take what God meant to be good and we extend the boundaries. Sex is just an example. Because it can happen in business practices when good business practices become cheating. It can happen in family planning when family planning becomes abortion. It can happen in the admiration for the human body when it becomes pornography. It can happen in in discipline when it becomes abuse. The first step of rebellion, we take what's meant for good and we blow it apart. Then we move to the second step of rebellion. Verse 26, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. We embrace perversion. Not only do we take what was good and, and take it way beyond the boundaries that God intended, we take what God intended to be natural and we blow it up and make our own rules. And we embrace that which is unnatural. And Paul gives the example of homosexuality. And I realize it's politically incorrect to talk about homosexuality in a lot of places. And it could be the content for three sermons. Suffice it to say that Paul's making it very clear that homosexuality is not what God intended. It's not God's natural design for humanity. So we embrace perversion. The third step in verse 28. Furthermore, they just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. By this step, by this stage, we are in a world where everything goes. It's hard to distinguish right from wrong. Everyone does what's right uh, in their own mind. Paul says that God gives us over to a depraved mind. And then he lists the longest list of sins ever listed in the Bible. 21, depending on how you uh, categorize what he lists. Some Horrible, grotesque sins and some sins that are way too uh, familiar. Because Paul's leveling the playing field. All of us can find ourselves in that list. And then we get to verse 32. And it's kind of a concluding statement. But I'm going to make it the bottom of the barrel. It's the loss of public morality. It's when truth becomes relative. It's a place where good becomes evil and evil becomes good. It's a place 
where right and wrong uh, is determined uh, by preference and by convenience. It's a place where the evildoers are celebrated and and are encouraged and those who speak out against it are opposed. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? How can you tell when a nation has hit the bottom of the barrel? In verse 32, Paul says they know the truth, but they continue on in error and they encourage others to do likewise. Far too close to home. We live in a time where society has hit the bottom of the barrel. And we're under God's wrath. But it's also a time where people are ripest for the gospel. When people are realizing that life is empty without God. And they're turning back to God. And we're seeing it here at Auburn as people who have hit the bottom. Are turning to God. A couple of closing thoughts. One is this passage, and I'm assuming the passages that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, hits so close to home. I don't know if you caught it, but it was very evident to me as I prepared this message. The two furthest extremes, or the, 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 the lowest levels that we stoop to in those, in those downward spirals that Paul describes. One is idolatry. The second was the bottom of the barrel of rejection. Loss of public morality idolatry. In the writing of this letter, Paul, and especially these verses, Paul works very hard to show how absurd it is that we would worship anything other than the creator of this universe, the Lord Almighty. I think of Habakkuk 2 that that says how silly it is to worship something we make with our hands. And I know that I don't worship something I made with my hands that rots and falls over. But if idolatry, an idol is something that takes the rightful place of God in my life, how often do I worship subtle idols in my life? I worship success. I worship wealth. I worship property. How often do I allow those things in life, like my family, like my hobbies, like my, my interests, my pursuits, take the rightful place of God in my life? How often do I let my own worldview, my own prejudices, Dictate how I see the world around me instead of looking at it through God's point of view. And then that bottom of the barrel, the loss of public morality. Paul says, you know you've hit the bottom when you know the truth, but you continue in error anyways and you encourage and celebrate those to do likewise. It has been so challenging for me as a father to have my Two girls now to be of an age where they want to sit up with dad and watch TV. And my girls love to consume books. Man, it made a big impact on what I watch at night on TV. And the, and the best-selling novels that I leave sitting around the house. Paul says, we've hit rock bottom when we are approving and celebrating those who do wrong. What are we doing by watching the stuff we watch on TV and spending our theater dollars on the movies that we watch and our musical 
dollars on some of the music that you can buy that celebrates the 21 sins that Paul lists in that long list. I don't want to come across as legalist, but I think you get the point. Because I think in many ways, I'm approving and I'm celebrating evildoers. And Paul says that's the bottom of the barrel. And I think it's become quite evident that around us, we're living in a time where society has hit the bottom of the barrel. And what, what can we do? And this is number two, Sally, concluding thought of us not on behind me. We can pray. Pray that God would awaken those around us of their need for a Savior and the need for their sin to be dealt with. Ground ourselves in God's Word. God's Word is our instruction manual how to navigate through the bottom of the barrel. And one of the greatest, I was going to say sins, it probably is a sin, but one of the greatest mistakes the church has made today is that we don't preach the whole counsel of God and people are missing out understanding the wrath of God and the punishment of sin. Examine ourselves. Don't just pray that God would awaken those outside the walls of the church of of their sin. Examine ourselves and pray that God would awaken us to our own sin so that we could daily confess our sin and then daily submit ourselves to his lordship. And then fourthly, take a stand. Someone has said that a society, a city, a town, a neighborhood will always crumble when the godly do nothing. God has not called us to be popular. He hasn't, he hasn't called us to be politically correct. He's called us to be his representatives. And then finally, it's been a pretty maybe negative message from how you've judged it. Is there any hope? Is there even one word of hope? Well, there is. In fact, there's a word that the Bible uses six times. The Bible uses this word six times when talking about the work of Jesus on the cross. And the word is propitiation. Propitiation might be a word that, you know, that's one of those churchy words. I don't really understand what it means. I can't remember if I put the definition. Well, there it is. Propitiation. To turn away wrath by offering a gift. We know what, husbands, we know what that's all about. Buying flowers often is an act of propitiation that we're turning away wrath by offering a gift, but to a much greater extent. 1 John verse, chapter 2, verse 2. Underline this in your Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, underline it in that too, so someone sees it the next time they're reading it. John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or in other words, and it might be in your translation, He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ offered Himself as a substitute and as a sacrifice, as an atonement, a payment for our sin. And God has fully accepted it. And understand this. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love in, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So we got the wrath of God, but God in his love provides himself to pay the price for our sin. And if we accept 
Jesus is our propitiation. We experience the full mercy of God, his full forgiveness. But if you don't, if you reject God's offer of salvation in Jesus, you remain under his wrath. And that's not a nice place to be.